Welcome to Church Uncharted, a podcast about following Jesus and making new followers of Jesus in the uncharted waters of today. Your host, Matt Schubert, serves at a Lutheran church in the Rockingham Mandra region of Western Australia, and he'll be joined by guests who will help us, the church, interpret these crazy times that we're living in. What will emerge is out of the DNA of Christ, he will raise something up and it might not look at all what has gone in, but it will be identifiable with it as it comes out the other side. That's what the Holy Spirit is always doing. It's our hope that as you listen into the following conversation, you'll be encouraged by the everyday power of the gospel be given a deeper love for God's church and be stirred to see the way the Spirit is at work in the lives of those around us. Welcome back to the second episode of the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Matt. Great to be with you again. In the first episode, we spent a little bit of time talking about uh, church. Uh, We were talking largely about the way that although a lot of the stuff that we, as the church, put our confidence in for the maintenance of the body of Christ, that a lot of that stuff has been now removed um, as as we can't meet together physically, as we perhaps can't celebrate Holy Communion, as as we can't sit under the ministry of the Word in person. Now, a lot of the stuff has been removed, but what we really said was that as all of this is removed, the only thing that remains is Christ as the cornerstone holding us up. We also talked a little bit about how it's not the role of us as Christians to find a quick fix at this time, to continue on business as usual, but this might be a time for us to sincerely stop and sincerely consider the the things that we've lost and perhaps look in hope to Jesus as the one who has also been through the struggle and who continues to be alongside us in our struggle. So we're talking about all that, Noel, and then towards the end of the conversation, we fixed our eyes outward beyond the, the the current members of the body of Christ. And we started talking about perhaps what is God up to, not just within the church, but within the world at mm. this time. Uh, because it's become very obvious that this is a humbling time, not just for the church, as we talked about in the last episode, but for the world as a whole. Mm-hmm. There haven't been many people who have been left unaffected by the coronavirus. So at the moment, Noel, how do you see the emotional, the the spiritual climate of Australia at this time? What is the current attitudes of people even beyond the church? Wow, that's a big question. It's a a really big question. Um, I'm not sure if I can answer that question. But let me make a few comments that relate to it, and then you can see where you want to go with that. I think the first is that the the levels of panic buying and other things that we've seen indicate the very 
deep and mostly suppressed anxieties that people naturally carry around within them and uh, that emerge in a time like this uh, in surprising ways. Now, for us, we've never had to live through a time like this, but there have been generations before her before us who have, you know, they've had to live through World War One or the Depression or World War Two or previous generations have had to live through attacks of the plague or wars and rumours of wars and earthquakes and uh, from the church's point of view, as we were commenting on last time, very intense and sustained persecution. And so we are not used to facing this sort of national or international crisis as persons or as societies. And so I think it's taken us a little bit by surprise to see what's come out of people. But if you read, for example, some of the biographies of folk who were, say, for example, taken into captivity in prison camps in World War II or uh, people who... Uh, write the bio their biographies or autobiographies from the outbreak of World War One or World War Two. We've had a lot of those sort of things come out in recent years because of our proximity to the 70th and uh, 100th anniversaries of these events. Um, I think you find that similar reactions have come out, you know, that as a humanity, we carry deep-seated fears which we barely express until the covers are listed off. Mm. There, there's a group of American social psychologists who investigated some of this years ago. I, one of the pioneers, you know, Becker, and then that was followed up a number of other researchers working alongside him. Now, they were not uh, Christian or researchers or religious in any way, as far as I know. Uh, people like um, Greenberg and Yalom and others that uh, we don't need to worry about the details, but um, what they indicated in their research was that this thing that they that they identified as death anxiety, that's the term they used, is universal and it's very easily provoked. This is a cross-cultural phenomenon and that when it's, when it's provoked, it's very difficult to get it back in its box. They See, I was whole, thinking yeah, that... Uh, in, in recent uh, conversations, before the outbreak of the coronavirus, uh, in some uh, classes and other conversations, we, we were saying that the modern society uh, no longer fears death, that it's now all about the uh, preservation of image. But I think perhaps, uh, as you're referring to that, in the panic buying and uh, other quite radical measures that are being taken, uh, there, there, is, there is this death anxiety that has re-emerged that, that maybe was lying dormant for, for some time. Uh, that's, yeah. that, that's the way that I'm seeing it. I, I don't think it ever lies dormant. I think it is actually always active. And it's actually that which drives a lot of our other stuff, our status, mm. envy, our FOMO, our mm. fear of missing out, our, our necessity to project an image, our need to self-justify, uh, our experiences of guilt and shame in many ways related to this. It's, it's what the writer to the Hebrews speaks about when he talks about um, the evil one holding the whole world captive uh, mm. through their fear of death. It's 
what Isaiah speaks about in Isaiah 29 when he talks about this this shroud or this pall which hangs or is stretched over all the nations and there he's using the word for people groups like all cultures and uh, those researchers that I alluded to earlier would say that well cultures try and build what they call cultural anxiety buffers to keep that fear at bay Mm. and uh, we develop superstitious behaviours. We do all sorts of things in order to try and keep that fear down. But when it pops out, it's actually terrifying what it will drive us to, you know. And uh, one of, So although uh, maybe people haven't been uh, naming death explicitly, although they might not refer to it as fear of death and speak openly about that, a whole bunch of other fears actually spring from this fear of death and insignificance and nothingness mm. is, is would that be fair to say? That, that, that's true. And I suppose uh, the fear of death, as we're speaking about it, is the fear of mortality, the fear of loss of life, yes. But in one way, it's also the death of who, if we've gone a long way to construct a certain identity about ourselves, and then that identity seems to be taken away. You know, I saw someone on television just uh, recently being interviewed because businesses are closing down and, and the person being interviewed on television was, uh, you know, loved going to the gym and they were in tears because they said, well, this is my lifestyle. This is who I am. And when that's taken away, what's left, you know, other names that sort of help us understand some of this are, are people like Viktor Frankl, who was imprisoned in Auschwitz and Dachau, while, you know, the great uh, Viennese psychiatrist, but who was Jewish and imprisoned and so forth for his Jewishness during the Holocaust. Uh, now, he wrote that amazing book called Man's Search for Meaning. And so it's the death of meaning that's such a yeah. problem. I've, I've invested my life in building my physique and it's gone. You know, yeah. I've invested my life in building my mansion and now I can't afford the repayments. I've invested everything I've had in making this business work. And they, in some senses, are meaning-making things for us, identity-making things. Yeah. Uh, when yeah. you were referring to the the woman who was quite upset about the, the closing of the gym for the time being, it reminded me of, you know, Israel without a temple. Um, mm. and, and you know the the kind of cultural significance and 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 the meaning making thing that you know that the temple was uh, to mm. ancient Israel. Mm. And do you think that might be why, if if people are having these these meaning making things taken away from them, is that why? Mm. At least within my circles, I've I've already heard of two different people who uh, during this time even the coronavirus in its early stages this crisis has driven them to ask questions about god to to, mm. to seek someone who might have answers or some kind of spiritual insight uh, to mm. make sense of the world when their meaning making things uh, stopped working or or was stopping offered is is, is that why we might see a number of these stories of, of people who begin seeking out God as perhaps a more sturdy, meaning-making thing? Look, I think that's the case. I, I mean, I've worked as, um, started out my life as a school teacher, but in terms of Christian ministry, my main fields have been in pastoral ministry and in theological education in different places. 
And uh, in both those areas, I would say that many, many people I've seen come to faith over the years have come to faith through a crisis, that it's not just one day they decide, they wake up and decide, oh, I think I'll be a Christian today, you know, that there's often uh, an insoluble problem or an issue that has forced them to the end of themselves or grief which has taken them by surprise or something else which has come. And through that interaction and relationship that is formed by the Holy Spirit in those days, the Lord opens them up to himself. You know, he's already planted the seeds within them through that time. I think we're seeing that probably on a personal scale, but I think certainly even just in the Weekend Australian a weekend or so ago, there was a very fascinating article by one of the journalists there about what does this crisis, what will this crisis say? I think it was, I may name the journalist actually, I think it's Paul Kelly, I think it was Paul Kelly. And uh, he was saying, look, you know, this is going to define where we put our faith. Is it still going to be a sort of human-centered faith in our own selves, or is this going to redefine our faith in something greater than ourselves? And I'm paraphrasing what he was saying, but he said mm. the jury's still out on which where this is going to lead. But you know, it's not just individuals who are asking this question. It's uh, thinkers, journalists, uh, politicians, I'm sure, philosophers and others, because the world as we know it, our politicians have been saying this is a once in a hundred year event um, and who knows what's yet to come. We will not in any shape or form just be able to go back to business as usual as though this hasn't affected us. So I think when, you know, I've uh, one of my first Bible college principal had spent three and a half years in Changi prisoner of war camp and mm. what that did for him in terms of stripping out all of his previous assumptions about life and ministry he went in as a christian who had begun theological training and how that was rebuilt from the roots up in the prison camp and that story would be echoed many times you know miracle on the river Kwai would be another uh, corrie ten booms experience in the holocaust would be Mm. another and nationally we're just uh, internationally we're we're just at the beginning of having to face some of those things with other generations have faced and i'm not quite sure what god's going to do in that but it certainly is a meaning making question for us certainly we we can't forget that this this current situation which might drag out for for months and months and months uh this will shift our worldview uh whether that, that will be individually but also corporately both for christians and for for non-christians we this is an opportunity or whether people like it or not worldviews will be challenged and and shifted during this time as because we know that our worldview it's 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 the way that we view the world it's it's the lens through which we interpret uh reality around us and all of us have different things that that make up that lens and for for many many people around the world the things that make up those lenses the things that were meant to be stable and the things that were meant to be sure the lens is starting to crack in very very real ways that's right right. and so here uh in somewhat of a prophetic way, one of my favorite thinkers 
Mark Sayers, he, he wrote some, uh, a couple of years back in Reappearing Church, he wrote, yeah. the secularist life script is dependent on crucial political, economic, and social factors being in place. Elements that are becoming fragile, opening up a new potential for renewal and revival in the West. No, is is this a time for we, we don't want to be parading it in front of people's faces the the fact that everything seems to be falling down. But is is this the time that the Christian Church should be having sincere conversations of worldview? Mm. Look, I, I don't particularly like the word "should" <laughs> for a lot of reasons, but I, I think Ken. it's inevitable. <laughs> I think it's I think it's inevitable that it will happen. If if I may suggest though, the the first thing for us to do here is not to think in terms of having a worldview conversation, but how do we bless and serve those around us? Mm. I agree with Mark Sayers' comment and various for various reasons agree with it uh, very strongly. But the reality that we're facing now is not theoretical. Now, I'm not sure of the exact figures, Matt, but I think in the last census or thereabouts, uh, roughly 25% of Australian households are single occupancy, something like that. It was a figure that took me by surprise when I came across yeah. it. Yeah. And now is the opportunity for us to actually discover those who are next door to us. There have been dreadful stories emerging out of Italy of people who've been just left in their homes to die, no one to care for them, people being abandoned by aged care staff and they've been found either dead in their beds or semi-starved because there's been no one there to provide meals for them. In similar circumstances to these in times past, it's been the Christian community who's actually connected in a in a real way, in a personal way, with people who've needed care. Now, we don't need to transgress any government guidelines to do that. We've got ways of contacting people, ways of arranging, if they're isolated and shut in, ways of arranging food delivery, ways of checking on their welfare. And I think those worldview conversations are all going to just flow. They have to. but the important thing that's before us just at the moment is what what relationally are we doing with those closest to us, you know, uh, not just our Christian friends, but those perhaps whom we've never spoken to before in our streets. It, how and where do we check on their welfare? And let's not try and guess what the conversation will be, but here's a person who actually needs something you're absolutely right and it was only yesterday that like i was feeling like i i was craving you know that that community and you know that maybe we might need to get used to that to a certain extent but i i remember saying to my wife becca yesterday i was like i'm i'm glad i i have you here i'm i'm glad that we, we can be here together because i i would i would really struggle with it if i was the only person living in a household, you know, mm-hmm. if I was the only person living in a house. Yet, as you've just uh, mentioned, that that is the reality for a lot of people. And perhaps what you're making me think that whilst we can, as Christians, what if 
if we're thinking about worldview and the way that the worldview for a lot of people might be proving fragile at the moment, that's something that we can keep at the back of our mind and ponder on, but really that should propel us into love rather than to keep that as a theoretical idea or even something to bring up with somebody in a chat room or on, on the internet straight away. But actually that should be the one of the driving forces that, for the spirit to move us mm from simply being comfortable or, or smug, but to actually go, well, chances are that person's worldview might be rather fragile at the moment. Rather than me coming in and correcting that straight away, how can I help try and pick up some of those broken and, pieces that might be there? Yeah, and, and I think that's really important in our society ever more than it was, say, even in the other things we've alluded to, like World War II. Because uh, my parents, for example, lived through the war. My recollection of their stories growing up, as well as my experience of growing up, so going back into growing up in the 60s and 70s, was that even then, there was a much greater sense of connectedness as families, that grandmothers and grandfathers often lived very close to children, that there were more people in terms of extended families, uncles and aunties and cousins and things with whom we had much more regular contact. But the sort of globalised uh, climate that we're in means that families are scattered all over the world. They've gone for work all over the place. There's very, very large percentage of households who don't have any close family members living near them. You know, they've they've scattered in the search for, for work or for other reasons, um, marital breakdown, all sorts of things. So this is hitting us at a time we're probably more socially disconnected than we mm. were in the last great crisis. And so, therefore, there's the opportunity to make connections with people who probably need it more than they ever did. I think inevitably it's going to ask questions about the meaning of life, the destiny of life, the finality of uh, life. It raises all those, those death anxiety questions, but it also gives the opportunity for the grace of God and the image of God to shine very brightly. And I think... As well as that, we're going to see uh, the, you know, those sort of perhaps negative things, if I may use an inadequate term. Uh, we're going to see magnificent actions of self-sacrifice and heroism. And even as we said in the first podcast, the idea of us sequestering ourselves away and giving up our meeting together as church is actually a part of how we love the community and how we serve the more vulnerable. It's an act of self-giving to to do that and so there, there will be acts of self-giving from our medicos and thousands of other people our essential services people and there will be also amongst the church you know people will actually for the first time be talking to their neighbors and checking on their welfare and that need not as we said break any of our government guidelines it can be done with a phone call it can be done remotely it can be done through a note through the letterbox um, mm. the lord's just impelling us i think to to look out of ourselves at this stage yeah i i love that and i think it's a a time where the church can get really quite creative um you know love can drive you to do some crazy things but uh we 
perhaps by the time this podcast comes out, that this idea might be illegal, unfortunately. But uh, there, there is this uh, idea I saw pop up on Facebook where uh, there is a letter that is put in every uh, mailbox in the street and, and it says, driveway drinks at 5.30 Sunday. And everyone just has the invitation to, to come and sit out uh, at the end of their, their driveway at, a, at the same time every week. And, and sure, pe- people aren't going to be close enough for, for you to shake their hand and, and, and give them a hug. But uh, you, you're going to see each other. You, you're going to have, they're still going to be close enough that you might be able to hold a, a conversation. And it's those small opportunities for community interaction that uh, will prove so vital over these coming months, I, I suspect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and if this isn't just Christians who, who are feeling compelled to, to do this, but I'm, I'm sure that the Spirit is at work and, and I'm sure that the Spirit would like to drive us to, to act in yeah. this kind um, of way. Uh, well, yeah, you would know, Matt, from our previous conversations and the training we've done together, you know, the training events is that one of the sayings of the group that we work with within the church is, um, what was God doing here before I showed up? Mm. You know, God is always ahead of us and he's doing something in the community ever before we are there. It's a question simply of having our sails set and catching the wind and um, taking us to where he needs us to be. But you're absolutely right. Um, it's a gift of God in the community as much as it's a gift of God for the church to be involved in these days. And those conversations that you alluded to, I think the Holy Spirit will just bring bring forward uh, because when the normal pillars that we look to for meaning and purpose and identity and destiny are taken away, we can't be contented with a meaningless vacuum. Mm. as uh, many of our philosophers have told us, yes. You, you believe that the Spirit will use these times, redeem these times for some kind of harvest? In, in oh, the world? Uh, oh, I believe, absolutely, absolutely. That's, that. That, that's your prayer at the moment, Noel? Um, it's my prayer, but also my, my deep conviction that um, you probably remember one of those verses from Joel where um, great disasters had called, fallen upon the people and the locust plague had come through after the bushfire and other things. And uh, just a promise that Joel was given by God that God would restore the years that the locust has eaten. Mm. And uh, I think he's always, there's only one story in the Bible from the beginning to end. It's the story of death and resurrection it's just told a thousand different ways. I don't know, Matt, um, <laughs> sounds very, very cruel, but <laughs> if, you've, if you've ever cut up a chrysalis, you know... I, 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 to be honest, I don't even know what a chrysalis is, Noel, so oh, you're, you're going to have to educate me on this. Oh, you know that, that phase that a rub or a, a caterpillar goes into before it's a butterfly? It hangs. Ah, yes. Yep. I, I remember um, that from uh, the very hungry caterpillar. In, the in very hungry caterpillar. Yep, that's it. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad you and I are on the same level here now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I had a friend I was talking to a little while ago, and he said when he was a boy, uh, he and his dad 
and his brothers decided they were going to cut up a chrysalis and see uh, if they could see how far the caterpillar had gone into turning mm. into a butterfly. And uh, when they cut it open, they discovered it was just mush inside and that you couldn't see how far the caterpillar had gone in its transformation. And the uh, assumption they came to was that, in fact, it, that must have been one that had gone off. You know, it was a bad one. Mm. In fact, that was a perfectly normal one because what happens is that there's a complete dissolution of the caterpillar down to a sort of DNA soup. And then a real uh, and a complete uh, reconstruction out of the same DNA into a butterfly. Mm. So it's the same DNA from the same critter reconfigured, but it has to go through this. And that's why the butterfly is often a symbol of the resurrection, of course. Mm. Now, I think what the Holy Spirit is doing, uh, say, particularly for the church, if we just ha hang or hark back to our previous conversation, He's he's turning the church into a bit of a soup at the moment. <laughs> yeah, but what will it feels emerge? like that, Noel. So I'm, I'm I'm glad you put words to it. Yeah, what what will emerge is that is is out of the DNA of that, out of the DNA of Christ, and out of the DNA of His finished work, and out of the DNA of the Holy Spirit, He will raise something up, and it might not look at all what has gone in to the chrysalis, but it will be identifiable with it as it comes out the other side. And I'm deeply convinced that that's what the Holy Spirit is always doing. He's He does not take things down except to build them up. You know, there's mm. this process of creative destruction that always happens. And I think we're living in such a time that we're seeing that on a scale we've never seen it before. Mm. And so it is not just my prayer, but my conviction. That's the sort of thing that's happening. And we are not creative in... Creative destruction. We're not in control of the process. Yeah, yeah. Creative destruction. So that seems to be the narrative of, of the Bible, doesn't it? it, it that, that seems to be the, the way that God delights to, to work. It seems that he yeah. loves to show his strength in, in weakness. Uh, that's and that phrase, by the way, it's not mine. It's uh, for your listeners. It's uh, a phrase I borrowed from Joseph Schrumpeter, the American economist writing in the 40s and 50s, and he was talking about economic theory and redevelopment. But you know, in his theory, uh, an example of creative destruction is uh, Netflix versus Blockbuster. And at the beginning, a blockbuster type business might say, "Well, Netflix is, doesn't mean much and isn't going anywhere." And we don't have to invest in it. And then uh, not too many years later, there's only one blockbuster video place left, which is a museum in America somewhere now. Mm. Um, <laughs> and so I, I've, it's not my phrase, it's his phrase, and I've sort of adapted it. But I think if you look back through the history of God's people throughout the Old Testament, uh, throughout the history of the church as Lutheran, people, the history of the Reformation, there's this process where a tipping point comes and the wineskins are sort of burst asunder and you think, goodness, can anything good emerge from this? It all just seems so chaotic. And, uh, and yet the same DNA is there and that DNA will express itself differently. Uh, and we only get into strife, so to speak, if we think that safety is in going back when in fact safety is in being carried along with it. 
That's, that's a great phrase, creative destruction. And uh, that's, our, that's our, our prayer at the moment, that God would use his, his church uh, in his mission to um, br- bring to, together the soup, um, do something that only God can do. Mm. Now, I think that wraps up our time today, Noel, but thank you so much for joining with us. Uh, this has been a, a great conversation and it seems like there's more for us to, to talk about. So I hope that we can chat again soon. Uh, thanks, Matt. Uh, always great to talk with you and uh, you keep safe. We'll talk again soon. Okay. Okay. God bless. God bless. Bye-bye. listening to Church Uncharted, a podcast about following Jesus and making new followers of Jesus in the uncharted waters of today. Sharing is caring, so if you have found this conversation helpful, be sure to send the link to a friend or family member so that they too can be encouraged by the everyday power of the gospel, be given a deeper love for God's church, and be stirred to see the way the Spirit is at work in the lives of those around us.